Preferred Shares is a podcast started by three guys interested in business, history, and business history. We follow our interests and go down the rabbit holes of current and bygone topics. We'll talk about individual companies, product wars, famous founders, forgotten failures, and anything else that strikes our fancy. To find our episodes and show notes, please visit our website at preferredsharespodcast.com. The hosts for the podcast are Devin Lassar, Douglas Ott, and Lawrence Hamptel. Devin is a private investor with a background in design and brand development and is the author of The Invariant Newsletter. Douglas is a founder and chief investment officer at Andvari Associates, a registered investment advisor. Lawrence is a co-founder and principal at Fortune Financial Advisors, also a registered advisor. All opinions expressed by the podcast hosts and guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective employers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Anvari and Fortune Financial may have positions in any of the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Preferred Shares podcast. Today, we'll be doing our first interview with a special guest and friend of the show, Warwick from Down Under. Warwick reached out to us after listening to our episode on Mars Incorporated, and as we covered in that episode, Mars has been and remains a secretive and private company still. The, the Mars family themselves don't give interviews or much information at all to outsiders. However, Warwick shared with us that he actually worked for a number of years at Mars, and as well as Cargill, another secretive private company, and he has a few stories to share. But we hope the coolest part of this episode is the answer to the question of how does one actually operate and maintain a physical plant that processes and makes food for consumers? And so Warwick, before we dive in, we'd just like to thank you for taking your time to record with us. We know how busy you are and we really appreciate it. Welcome. No worries. No worries. All right. So just to provide our listeners with a little bit of context on your background, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to be where you are today, where you are today, and the types of responsibilities you have. Well, I'm uh, my training's in chemical engineering, chemical process engineering. I've been in the food industry for about 23, 24 years now. And somehow, not deliberately, I've ended up working only for privately held companies. So I started my career with Mars. Uh, working in R&D and production support, then went on to work in factory operations and, and construction for Cargill. Uh, spent seven years with a startup company that sells equipment to mainly beverage bottling companies around the world now, although we tried a, a number of other things as part of that process. And currently, I, I run a small plant that makes basically carrot juice as a, a food ingredient that's supplied to a lot of the, these bigger food companies in Australia and, and also overseas. As you can probably tell from the accent, I'm from Australia. I live on the, the West Coast, but at the moment, yeah, we're, we're recording this from the, the East Coast where I'm on holidays. Great. And about your current position now with your employer, or would you call yourself more of a manager? What would be a, an official title that you might have? Well, I think the official title is production supervisor, but it's a it's a small plant, which is part of a, a larger privately owned company. It's quite a small operation. So to process 400 ton a day of carrot in the carrot juice, we only need four people plus myself. But that role involves supervising the production operation of the operation, the maintenance, procurement, and a large part of the, the sales as well. One of the things that was kind of interesting, Warwick, when we were discussing the Mars Corporation and our previous podcast was how diligent the Mars family was towards quality control and some of their surprise visits to the facilities and kind of a white glove treatment. You know, there was a story about Forrest Mars, how he would do kind of a surprise checkup on the facilities and they would stop everything to check for dust and so on about every 45 minutes. Can you explain or kind of talk to us of about whether or not that is a little bit of hyperbole or is, is that real? And if so, like what's the logic behind being so uh, attentive to those minute details inside the factory? I don't think it's hyperbole. So I think there's a lot of stories out there. Uh, some of it's probably apocryphal. It's, it's been modified over the years. But I know when I was there, the facility uh, maintenance program, so looking after the actual building itself, used to revolve around uh, visits from the family. 
and they do check things. So uh, it wasn't unheard of, or it was quite common for, for one of the family to turn up, climb to somewhere inaccessible and not really that important in the factory in terms of cleanliness, uh, run their finger over something and, and pronounce it dirty uh, and cause a whole heap of basically interruption and, and trouble while that got fixed. So if you're a Mars factory manager or anyone in that part of the business, you had to keep the plant spotless. And this was their way of making sure that there were, there were consequences and people paid attention to keeping the plant clean. To run a safe plant, it's necessary to keep the surroundings of the plant clean, not just the, the food processing equipment. So they have a, in, in food processing, there's a thing called GMP, so good manufacturing processes. And what that means is you have as a layer of safety, the, the cleanliness of the plant. Uh, that you process in. So there's an example of what goes wrong if you don't get that right. And probably the best known one is, I think it was Peanut Corporation of America, which is a peanut processing and peanut butter uh, manufacturing plant in the US that ended up making sick or even killing a bunch of people due to, I think, salmonella. The salmonella contamination entered the, the product from the roof space of the plant. So usually in a food plant, you have a ceiling and then you have a, a roof space above that that's accessible where you have a lot of piping and maybe your refrigeration equipment, that kind of thing. They didn't keep that area clean to the point where it had some sort of pest infestation, rats or birds, something like that. And the amount of buildup up there in terms of soil got that bad that it was leaking down into the product, made a whole heap of people sick. So that's the extreme of what can go wrong if, if you don't have a good GMP program. Mars was way at the other extreme. I mean, the, the place was just way too clean. But when you're a small management team trying to run a bunch of facilities all over the world and you really care about your brand reputation, it's a pretty good tool for making sure that you get compliance at a, a factory level. I was going to ask, do you think that they were able to exercise such extreme diligence, maybe for lack of a better word, because they were private? Do you think that the standards might be a little bit more relaxed in a public setting or a publicly owned firm, I should say? There's no reason why you couldn't do the same thing in a, in a publicly owned firm, although these days where everything's in social media, you, you probably would, would find that it gets out there and, and maybe you get some negative publicity from it. The biggest difference I see between Mars and a lot of public companies is the, the owners really care. It was important to them to maintain their reputation. The company to them, as far as I could tell, wasn't just a, a source of income. It's their life. So they paid a lot of attention to making sure that they, they got what they want, not just in terms of financial performance, but in terms of their own satisfaction about how things were run. So you, you could do it in a public company, but it, it'd be rare to find a CEO that cares that much and has that much of an emotional stake in the business. Yeah, if I were to kind of sum it up more of like a culture thing than public versus private, it's having that continuity and ownership. It's helped that culture kind of pervade the company, so to speak. That's right. I, and I, it's part of the personality of the people running it as well. Uh, they're fanatical and quite aggressive, I guess, in, in terms of how they, they approach these things. Uh, with this uh, extreme end of good manufacturing process, what sort of effect did it have on the employees and, and the managers that had to implement that? Was it easy to teach people to embrace that sort of thing? I'd say that the impact that it had was it, it created consequences and there were two types of consequences, good, good and bad. So if you were part of causing a, a GMP problem or any other problem that the, the owners of the business cared about, there were usually negative consequences. It wasn't going to, going to be good for your career and you probably weren't going to be around for very long. But the, on the upside, they used to pay exceptionally well. And that created other consequences in that if you could do the job and stick around, you knew you'd eventually get rewarded for it. In terms of the day-to-day, -day, I guess, life of employees there, it was a bit of a pressure cooker. You were under pressure to perform the whole time. But there are a lot of people that enjoyed that. I mean, my own personal opinion, a, a place like that tends to have better morale than a place where management doesn't really care what happens. And the reason for that is when management doesn't really care and there are no consequences, the best people get discouraged because there's no good consequences for them doing anything good. And they're held back by people who take advantage of the situation to, to not pull their weight. Yeah, I think that ties directly back to Mars paying exceptionally well, not just to attract top talent, but to retain it. And when you look higher and higher up within the business, they had people there for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And that only really happens, not just from being compensated monetarily well, but 
really having high morale and feeling like you're achieving something that you're you know, deriving true satisfaction from. This may be a good time to ask about some of the shortcomings of these lean Six Sigma types of business systems. We, we know you're familiar with these types of things, but we're curious about what are, are there any shortcomings to these types of business programs? Um, in terms of the programs, technically no. In terms of the way they're implemented, most commonly, I'd say yes. So it's been pretty common over the last 20 years for, for large businesses to implement or try to implement things like Lean or Six Sigma or Kaizen. And from my days at the, the startup company I work for, where I, I used to do a lot of travel uh, and a lot of factory floor visits all over the world, it was quite common to turn up to a plant, see that they had a, a notice board on the side with all of their you know, Six Sigma or whatever documentation on it, usually quite dusty and not recently updated. I would hear that they, they had had meetings or they were having meetings around this program and then go out in the factory floor and, and look at their maintenance and find out that their equipment was really badly maintained uh, and people were had very low morale. So the other comparison for that is Mars. So Mars, while I was there, didn't have those programs in place, uh, not at the, the business unit that I was at. At one stage, they did consider it and then rejected it because they believed that we already had a way of doing things that achieved the same thing, but without the formality. The way that Mars achieved it and the, and the way that I've seen successful process improvement done is you have to start with the factory floor. So if you leave your factory floor people to their own devices, they'll change things and try to improve them usually because it makes their life easier. There's always day-to-day -day things that they're doing that are causing them problems that are annoying that they want to fix. And often management gets in the way of that. Basically what Mars did was empower those people to fix problems that they saw on the factory floor and provide people like me, my, my job back then to help them do it. So when I look at what goes on today with these programs elsewhere, the biggest problem that I see is that they're usually driven from the top down and they're usually done without any technical support or without enough technical support from people who are good at managing factory floor changes. They often seek the support of the people on the floor, but without actually taking the time to, to see what the real problems are. If, if you're sitting in a meeting room trying to talk about something that's going on on the production line, you're going to be working with a lot worse information than you would get if you just walk out and have a look at what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And to throw a, a lean or Danaher business system term at you, Gemba is the Japanese word for where the work happens. And they frequently throw out these words and phrases, and it, and it sounds like you were saying Mars has come up with this organically, but it probably lacks the formality and the fancy terminology. But being where the work actually happens and seeing what happens and listening to the people that are doing the work and what their problems and issues are is a must for any change to be successful, right? That's right. And, and just to throw a Mars anecdote at that, there was a story, again, I don't know if it was true or not, but I think it was an engineer in, in one of the factories somewhere else in the world had complained that the air conditioning in the office wasn't working correctly at the time of a, a Mars visit. The consequences of which was their, their desk was relocated to the factory floor. <laughs> so um, that's part of that attitude. The, the other thing that's happened in the last 20 years that's related to that is the, the technical strength of most of the food manufacturing companies has been reduced. There's been a lot of downsizing and the, the engineers, the scientists that provide support to manufacturing are the sort of thing that you can do without in the short term. So usually if you're, you're trying to do improvements, it might take six months, 12 months, two years to, to see the result of what you're doing. So in a, a cost-cutting situation, getting rid of those kind of people often makes sense if you're trying to hit short-term targets. So when I've, I've visited factories over the, the last 20 years, it just seems like the, and I, and I know from talking to other people in the industry, the amount of technical support and technical strength inside food manufacturing companies is not what it was. And that, that's the other thing that's made this type of improvement difficult and slow. I was going to say, did you, during the COVID pandemic, what was your experience like with uh, supply chains and how stressed were things from being somebody kind of on the front lines? where people were missing work and I assume there were shortages and maybe uh, inventories were depleted. I'm just kind of curious what that was like for you. Yeah, it was a mess. So 
Uh, I was a lot luckier, or we were a lot luckier than most of the world. Western Australia, the state where um, we operate, was basically shut off from everywhere else for a lot of the pandemic. So we didn't have very high incidence rates of people getting sick uh, until later on when a lot of measures had been put in place. So we, we missed the initial panic, but we did see it operationally. So supply of things like packaging got really slow, caused problems. The raw material for our factory is waste carrots from another part of our business. So we, we didn't have any problem with that. That part continued. But shipping and logistics was a, a real problem. There's a, a container load of carrot juice out there somewhere that we shipped that never arrived. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's how messy it got. So, so pre-pandemic and now when you're, you're doing shipping inside of Australia, the receiver will usually force you to book a um, basically a time slot for the truck to arrive and unload its goods so that they can manage the capacity of their warehouse. The logistics warehouses here seem to run pretty light on staff uh, and they're obviously limited in how many uh, loading and unloading bays they have. So they'll get you to book a, a time slot before you, you dispatch the goods. So that, that was pre-pandemic. During pandemic, it was basically, if we could get a truck, we just loaded it and sent it and worried about that later. But yeah, trucks were going missing. We had a lot of trouble with the rail line between Western Australia and, and the East Coast. It was just a complete disaster from a, a logistics point of view. Later on, uh, once everybody did start getting sick, we had, had some problems, but the type of plant we've got, we can put up with short outages. We don't run all the time, so we just rescheduled production where we had to to work around that. But for other, other parts of our business that need to run every day of the week, it was a huge problem from a labor point of view. I would imagine that those types of supply chain issues look very different when you're looking at perishable versus non-perishable products. And especially with this more recent rise of just-in-time ordering that, that may have thrown an additional wrench into the spokes. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, just-in-time really went out the window. So we'd, we'd been pushed before the pandemic into basically just-in-time ordering from our packaging supplier. So in, instead of them carrying stock for us uh, that we could pull at any time, they pushed us into basically ordering when we needed it and ordering a, a, a certain amount of run length as a minimum. That went out the window during the pandemic. We just had to order way ahead of where we were and, and carry safety stock. From a perishable point of view, the products that I make and the rest of the business make are somewhat perishable, but there's usually enough slack in the shelf life of the goods that you, you can put up with some interruptions. But for example, another part of our business ships fresh vegetables to Middle East and Southeast Asia. They can put up with a you know, maybe a week of extra shipping, but if it blows out to a month, we start losing whole container loads of goods. So that's the real problem there. We basically went from just in time on our packaging out to carrying a huge amount of safety stock. We're still carrying the safety stock. And I think we will for some time. And that's really going back to the way things were when I first started my career. Back then, it was quite common for businesses to carry a decent amount of safety stock. To follow up along with the idea of shifting back to having this huge safety stock, have you guys taken up any other changes that have made the business more resilient rather than lightweight and seemingly more profitable, at least in the short term? Uh, we haven't really. The main thing it's done... I think has changed our attitude to our people a little bit. Not so much my attitude, but the, the rest of the business in terms of how hard it is to retain people and trying to keep hold of the, the people that are available locally. There's a lot of, lot of transient labor in food manufacturing. And that was the other thing that disappeared during the pandemic. At the, the start of the pandemic, the vegetable packaging plant that's part of our business, we had sufficient labor. During the pandemic, those guys gradually left. They were mostly backpackers that had come from overseas and were here for the short term. And there's been a real problem replacing them. So companies now are bringing in people from the Pacific Islands, paying more to have them here and having to pay for a lot of support services. So you, you're not just paying for their wage, you're paying for their accommodation, plus their pastoral care, so for, for people to come in, make sure their, their working environment is safe for them. That's the other thing that's really changed in the industry. And I, I think it's for the better. Having a lot of transient labour makes it hard. Well, it deters investment in things that make the business more efficient, and it deters the business from trying to retain the more expensive employees that you need to run a more complex plant. Yeah, I would assume that alleviating some of the employee turnover makes everything more efficient and robust and just generally easier to 
work with versus, you know, having employees coming and going and having to retrain people, if, if that's correct. That's correct. So the juice plant that I run at the moment, and I could say the same thing about a lot of Cargill's plants, they process a large tonnage with a very small amount of people. We process 400 ton a day of carrots that we juice. To do that takes one to two people per shift. The plant's highly automated, but it also needs intervention from somebody who really knows what they're doing to keep that running. To train someone to run the plant takes five weeks, six weeks, assuming they have the, the aptitude to do that job in the first place. So if you look at the, the combination of having a small crew, a long training time, and a dependency on a, a certain sort of quality of person, uh, if you lose one person, it's a really big problem to replace them. A lot of food processes over time get more and more automated. So there's this consolidation into larger and larger plants with fewer and fewer people running them, uh, which just puts more and more, um, well, it increases the requirement to have really good people and hang on to them. But I'm not sure that the industry's quite figured that one out yet. One of the questions I was going to ask was about the kind of split between labor and capital at any plant or yours in particular. And you just told us there's a handful of people running what sounds like a really enormous operation. But what, what have been kind of the big step changes in terms of automation in your career? Mainly the, the actual technology... There's been some improvement in it. So, so if you go to automate a plant, then you need a few things. You, you need, first of all, a good process design. So when you're, des you're designing a, a continuous plant, so when I talk about continuous, I mean something that you start up, you run for hours, days, weeks at a time producing something, and then you, you shut it down, as, as opposed to something that's a batch plant where you, you, you make three tons of something, package it off and then do something else. So with a, a continuous plant to be able to automate it, you need to have the actual piping design and tank design, process design done in a way that makes it easy to automate. That usually means having a simpler design and a well thought out system about what happens when things go wrong and redundancies. If you have that in place, then you need sensors and control systems to run that plant. And that technology has been around since before I started uh, working. So. 20 years, 30 years at least. And it, it has improved a little bit. The sensors that you get these days can give you uh, information about when they're going to fail. There's sensors you can put on bits of rotating equipment that will tell you when they're starting to vibrate and they're about to fail. So there's a lot of that information that's now more available. But the thing that's changed over time is the degree of automation has improved just because it's become more and more thorough. So when you first build a plant, you put in place a, an automation system and, and software to run it. That system always has bugs. And sometimes it has a lot of bugs depending on how well organized and, and thought out your, your execution was. And with that software, is that off the shelf or is it usually highly customized and a firm has been hired to customize this software for your particular plant? Highly customized. So you, you would buy the hardware from a company like Siemens or Allen Bradley, and then the software that goes in it, the configuration, you employ a uh, software engineer to write that. Uh, it's, it's highly customized. So over time, what I found is that that improved. So if you have a, a business like Cargill that runs a number of different plants around the world that are of similar design, you get improvements in that you learn from the mistakes you made on earlier installations and implement them in the your installations to improve them. The first plant that you build of any design is usually usually has a lot of bugs and a lot of startup problems. If you get the opportunity to build a second plant of this, a same or similar design, it will usually go a lot smoother. What I've seen over time is that has snowballed as businesses build more and more of the same sort of plant. The automation's gotten better and it's gotten linked with other back office things uh, like ERP software, that, that kind of thing. But the, the quality of the automation has definitely improved over the years. I would imagine that with those learnings, a company like Cargill would also be very good at keeping down what is known as tech debt, where they understand that they'll be needing to make continual improvements over time. Things will be changing and they'll be likely engineering things in such a way that they'll be able to actually make those changes in the future. Whereas a lot of smaller companies might be cutting costs, not keeping up with development. And then, you know, five years down the line when they want to make changes, perhaps they realize they're stuck because they haven't been Keep keeping up with everything. Would that be a, a, a fair way of thinking about that? That's that's a 
fair way, but you, you might be surprised how it actually works. So the biggest tech debt problems that I've seen on the factory floor, and I've seen some other ones elsewhere in, in the business as well uh, with big, big ERP software projects, but from a factory point of view, the biggest problem that you see with tech debt is that large programmable logic controller manufacturers, so the brains, the, the hardware that you use to control the plant, they don't support the, the hardware forever. So you spend a lot of money getting the configuration written for that, that software, and then you spend a lot of time getting the bugs out and improving it over time. And then every 10 years, 15 years or so, they stop supporting it. So the first thing you've got to do is prepare for that to happen and buy a heap of spares. <laughs> that, that's only delaying the inevitable, though. Uh, and then the second thing you've got to do is roll it over to a, a new version. So I've been through that once or twice. It's not fun. The hardware manufacturers usually supply in their software a, a way that claims to make it easy to, to change the software to suit the new hardware. My experience has been that that doesn't work very well and you end up doing a whole heap of rewriting, retesting on the run while the factory is still going. So that's a, that's a real nightmare. In the same vein of industry changes, and I realize this might be quite a bit different from Australia versus the US, but are you familiar with large regulatory changes that have forced your operations to change in any significant way? And along with that, I would assume your company keeps tabs on on what potential changes might be in the pipeline. And is there any sense in changing things proactively in anticipating those changes? Yeah, so we, we keep tabs on it. Australia is a little bit different to the US. I think my, my impressions of the, the US system is it's uh, there's a lot more intervention than there is in Australia. But here, for Zans, which is the, the regulatory authority here that, that looks after most of the food industry, they will publish ahead of time you know, requests for feedback on or requests for input on, on potential changes that they're going to make. So you, you can see them coming before they happen. And I guess if you're in an industry that they're working on, well, potentially there could be a lot of change. But personally, I haven't seen that much in terms of regulatory change over the last 20 years. Whilst there are rules on what you can put into food and, and certain types of food, so for example, dairy or um, low acid canned food have specific regulations and a bit more oversight, a lot of the food industry relies on basically the, on the principle that you need to follow the regulations yourself and then you'll get in trouble later on if, if you found to have, have had a problem. They're, they're not there inspecting us regularly or at all. I don't think I've ever met a person from a regulatory agent, agency. But what does happen that makes the whole thing work is through the supply chain up to the supermarkets is you get a lot of scrutiny from your customers. So the supermarkets in Australia, uh, there's two main ones, Coles and Woolworths, plus um, some smaller ones as well. They will insist that you have some sort of food safety management system in place. And there's, there's a bunch of those. They'll actually specify what standard that system needs to be to. And then it tends to flow down from there. So, for example, we've got a customer here that, that sells to the supermarkets. The supermarket will tell them you need to have this standard in place and potentially send someone out to audit that. That customer then insists that we, as an ingredient supplier to them, have a food safety management system in place. And not only that, they have their own requirements on top of that, and they'll send someone out to audit us in addition to us paying a company like SAI Global or SGS to, to come out and audit their own food safety management system every year anyway. That tends to be what makes it work without any real regulatory intervention. It works quite well. It's, it's hard to slip through that net. The only way you could do it would be to fraudulently operate one of those systems, fill in the paperwork, make things look good when the, the inspector is there and then do the wrong thing the rest of the time. But that's that's more work than just doing it properly in the first place. That, that's fascinating. And I would imagine would be quite a bit of a shock to hear for most listeners in the United States where food produced here, you have almost continual and intensive FDA-led inspections. Yeah, I find it strange. I don't know if that's to do with the power the supermarkets have here. Uh, Australia is the type of country that has a lot of oligopolies. And if you're not dealing with the, the main buyers, you're not dealing with anyone. So there's a strong incentive to comply. But that's sort of the way that it's, it's been as long as I, I've known. You have to have those systems in place and you have to run them well. The main reason being your customers won't like it if you don't and you'll lose the customer. Which you can't afford to because... You don't have so much competition at the at the end user space, I guess. You know, it's not you're not going to make up that business somewhere else. In other words, that's right. And there's not not many other options other than to export. And when you go to export, we 
we get similar requirements from overseas. We've got export customers overseas that will insist you have some sort of food safety management system. They don't really care so much which one it is, but they want to see that certificate so that they know that they're, they're not going to have problems. I guess another way of looking at it would be that if, if you're not running the plant well, you'll have, probably have quality problems as a, as a leading indicator before you'll have food safety problems. And those quality problems will cause commercial issues for the customer before you'll, they'll have food safety problems. So before they get to the, the point where they have a recall or, or unsafe food, they'll start to notice problems in terms of the product doesn't look right, doesn't taste right, doesn't feel right, that will cause them problems anyway. So that's another way of sort of looking at why we, we don't have so much regulation here. The, the problems will be detected in another way earlier. I think we're all interested in, in hearing any short anecdotes or stories that stick out in your mind from working at Mars or at Cargill. In terms of operational improvement, did you ever lead a big change that helped out a lot or seeing uh, people do something the wrong way that really they shouldn't have been doing and why you thought it was wrong or anything that kind of sticks in your mind. Because you did give a presentation to John Mars, right? That's right. So that that was an interesting story in how it worked out. So John Mars was visiting the site that I was at, and of course, he's a quite a scary guy. So I, I was looking after the, um, and I was quite a junior engineer at that stage. I'd only been out of uni for a couple of years. And I was looking after the wastewater treatment plant. That plant had a, had been exposed to a lot of extra load, mainly due to the company trying to trying to increase its current asset turnover ratio. So they'd gone on a bit of a, a car to drive, increased the frequency of product changes so that they could make more products more frequently and carry less stock. And we needed to spend some money on the wastewater treatment plant. So I was asked to go and do a presentation to John about why we needed to spend some money. And I had quite a strong manager, but his, his manager wasn't such a strong guy. And he, he basically said, look, tell this guy what he wants to hear. If you tell him the bad news, the last couple of engineers that are presented to him, he told us to sack them straight away afterwards. So uh, if you know what's good for you, probably the best thing to do is just go in and tell him what he wants to hear. I mean, he's, he's created this atmosphere of fear. He probably deserves it. Anyway, I couldn't do that. Um, <laughs> I'm a terrible liar and it's just not who I am. So I went in and I think I got about three sentences into my presentation. John said, well, it doesn't matter because we're all about to run out of water. He just read a book or was in the process of reading a book about why there were going to be global wars over, over water shortages. So I proceeded to get about a 30-minute lecture on that. And at the end of it, he said, yep, just do what you got to do. <laughs> so... Um, Maybe I got lucky, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you write a thank you note to the author? <laughs> yeah, I should. <laughs> this reminds me of some of the, the conversations that evolved between me and my dad. I mentioned just the right or wrong topic, and he goes off on a 30-minute tangent or screed to me about that. It sounds very familiar. Yeah, it's very, very paternal behavior. <laughs> I guess the other one that's interesting from a, a business process's point of view was at Cargill. So I'll be a little vague on the details, but I was working on a project there and I'd been out of plant operations for a little while. And it was decided from somebody at head office uh, in the US to come through and send, send an external auditor to come and have a look at our safety systems and really thoroughly audit them. So with Cargill's plants, the division I was in was the, the one that extracts oil from things like soybeans and canola seed, that type of thing. And they, they use hexane to do it. It's like very similar to petrol. So those plants can be quite hazardous. And there's a process that engineers use to basically to pre-assess the safety of those plants before they're built. And then that's often redone later on once the plant's operating, if there's a concern or, or just a lot of time has passed, they want to review it. And that's called HAZOP or SWIFT. There's, there's a couple of different versions of it. And that's basically a process where you, you pull out the, the design drawings for the plant, get a team of experienced people together and go through it asking devil's advocate type questions about, well, what's to stop this from going wrong? What's to stop that from blowing up? This from leaking that kind of thing cargill's got some really good safety systems again they involve a lot of paperwork they're audited every year and the plan i was at well we thought we were compliant um so the the auditor came over and he said to the plant manager all right well we're going to spend three days going through this review and the plant manager was like well you know we're in the middle of a big project here i don't think we really got time I was kind of skeptical of the whole thing so anyway came from head office so we were going to do it 
we started the review. Uh, I think we got about half a day into it. Still a lot of skepticism from the plant manager. And then during one of the breaks, the auditor said, oh, let's go for a bit of a walk. We'll go and have a look at the plant and see how things are. So he walked out there and long, long story short, found that we were basically about to blow it up. <laughs> so or a lot of the safety systems in that sort of plant are there to stop the hexane from getting out to another area where there could be an ignition source. So it's to keep it contained. And it's quite difficult. You're trying to put soybeans or canola seed into the plant and put it into the hexane without the hexane getting back out again and trying to seal those sort of systems where you've got solid material moving in without letting the hexane out. That's really difficult from a technical point of view. And what, what he found was there was a, a, a couple of systems there that had been bypassed. Or actually, one, one had been bypassed and we had a permit for that and another had been worn out by the abrasion of the, the material going past it and that hadn't been picked up. So the lesson I got out of that was, and I, I say this a lot with safety, you can have all the paperwork in place and follow all the standard procedures, but unless somebody is going out and physically looking at what's going on and being quite paranoid about it, it's possible to have a huge safety problem. And if you look at a lot of the, which chemical engineers like to do, we like to go back and look at other people's explosions. Um, if you look at a lot of the, the, other, the other things that have happened, like... Um, what was it, the the large explosion that you had in the Gulf of Mexico, Deepwater Horizon? So if you look at what happened with Deepwater Horizon, it was a similar sort of thing. They'd had a lot of safety systems in place. They had been audited by an external auditor who came in and, and gave them good reviews on their safety culture and the number of reports they were generating on small safety issues. But what had happened there is they had a lot of maintenance problems and they hadn't been given the funding. They'd requested it, but they hadn't been given the funding from head office to deal with them. So having that link between someone going out in the factory floor or out on the oil rig, seeing what's going on and being able to actually go and get the resources to get the job done to fix what needs to be fixed, that's super important. If you have that, you can have safety without the paperwork. Uh, if you have the paperwork, you're not necessarily going to get safety. So that was one of the biggest things I learned from working at Cargill. I'm going to say, Warwick, I don't know what the uh, Australian version of belt and suspenders is, but as a firm believer in redundancy and a little bit of OCD, I can appreciate your, your story there because my wife is always after me for double and triple checking all the shutoff valves and things like that around the house. But I always say, you never know because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And now your story has made me doubly paranoid <laughs> about double and triple checking everything now. One thing I've learned is the thing that you think is so unlikely that it will never happen, even though the consequences are pretty bad. That's waiting for you next week. <laughs> so when you when you when you talk about oh you know do you turn everything off before you go on holidays? We had one holiday at home where I wasn't a very long holiday, but we had a burst hot water pipe which chewed through a heap of water and a heap of gas in a very short period of time. How do you have a, a burst hot water pipe? I mean, here are they the cold ones burst all the time, but in the winter, ah, uh, crappy construction quality. So uh, it was a about a half oh. inch copper pipe, and they ran it underground. They needed to get past an obstacle, so instead of putting an elbow in, they just bent the pipe kinked it so um <laughs> it had been fine for about 20 years 30 years but uh, just at the wrong time it's it's corroded through and, and let go wow that's uh I, my grandfather was a plumber and he's probably rolling over in his grave hearing that story <laughs> the story you're sharing work reminds me of i'm preparing for one of our next future episodes on the rollins family which they're the family that acquired Orkin, the pest control company in the 1960s in the U.S. And the Rollins boys, John and Wayne, they had it taught to them, beat into them that if there's a problem that they see, it needs to be solved immediately, not next week or tomorrow. It's best to deal with whatever problem you see, deal with it now rather than later. And it sounds like that is one of the hallmarks of a good safety culture. It is. I mean, that can be quite overwhelming when you've got a lot of problems at once. But the places that I've seen that, are, that have a, an effective safety culture, that's what they do. When you start letting things go, it's very, I mean, it's a slippery slope. You let one thing go, all right, well, next week we've got something similar. Let's let, it, let that go as well or put it on hold or find a reason not to deal with it. If you want a good safety culture, part of it is not letting things slide. The other part is not giving things an excuse to slide. So if there's a reason why you need to wait for somebody else to do something or provide resources uh, to fix a problem, then people often wait. So that's a bit easier. If they've got the resources there or you make it clear to them that you, you expect them to ask, then that takes away that obstacle and you're more likely to have an effective safety culture. Mm -hmm.
Do we want to talk about the uh, suppliers or? Yeah, it sounds like in terms of auditing, you out have to outsource that to you know independent suppliers of those services. But any anything that stands out in your mind when it comes to the inputs necessary to run a successful and safe plant? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. So I tend to think of them as kind of industrial staples. It's, it's stuff that you're always buying it. You always need to buy it. And um, usually a, there's small ticket items that don't get a lot of scrutiny uh, just because people don't people in plants who do the purchasing don't have time. So in most large companies, if I'm going to buy something large, like uh, I'm going to sign a contract to buy natural gas for a year, or a couple of years, or I'm going to buy electricity or a whole new factory, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. There's going to be people from the purchasing department getting involved. And there's going to be a lot of price pressure on whoever's supplying that. Below that level, there's a whole bunch of other things that are smaller purchases where there's not so much scrutiny. And there's not as many resources to get over the switching costs of changing suppliers or putting things out to bid to different suppliers. So some examples of that. You've mentioned Fuchs, which is a lubricant oil supplier. About, I think, something like 45% of that business is industrial lubricant as opposed to, to auto. And industrial lubricants are something that maintenance managers will tend to buy from the same supplier through convenience. But if they have a, a particular bit of equipment that needs, needs a certain type of oil, a special type of oil, and often that, that oil is certified by the manufacturer, then they'll just stick to that type of oil, even if the price goes up year after year. So it's, it's more easy for those types of suppliers to maintain pricing power. So for example, we've got a decanter centrifuge that comes from a company called GEA. It's a big German company. The lubricant oil that goes in that, if you get it from GEA, I want to say they're going to charge you something like a thousand bucks a litre, something like that. But if you don't buy that oil from them and you try something else, you're running the risk that you damage a bit of equipment that's worth about half a million bucks. So it's a high-speed centrifuge, runs at very high speeds. If the lubrication's not right, it'll destroy itself in seconds. So it's super important in that sort of situation. In that case, there's another supplier called Kluber. They're privately owned German company that make the lubricant that GEA rebadge and sell to their customers. So you, you can buy it direct from Kluber. They'll provide some evidence that the, the oil is certified by GEA and you can use that one with confidence. But we don't use the, uh, the local supplier of that oil for anything else. I could go to our other supplier and ask for an equivalent oil, but I'm not going to do it because for the, the cost of it, which direct from Kluber, it's more like a hundred bucks a litre instead of a thousand bucks a litre. It's just not worth the risk of ruining a machine that's worth half a million bucks. And which if I put it out of action, it will cost me probably 40 grand to get it repaired. Plus, you know, lost production in the meantime. So that's an example of the sort of thing that Fuchs do. Um, obviously, they're, they're not involved in, in my situation, but they do that those kinds of oils and the, the pricing power they have. So if you look at Fuchs as a company, their sales have increased gradually over time. If you look at their actual volumes, the, the whole lubricant market has been slowly shrinking over time. So they've got some, some decent pricing power. Other examples would be uh, the companies that supply the cleaning chemicals to the food industry, so Ecolab uh, or Diversi, although I think they got taken out by, by private equity not long ago. Similar sort of situation, when you have a, a food plant, you need to usually clean it at least every day, sometimes more frequently. And the cleaning process is quite automated. So you usually add the chemicals to the plant and it will run itself through a cycle, uh, sort of like your washing machine at home to, to clean the internals of the plant. When you set up that type of a system, you have to validate it. So you, you start off with the plant dirty, run the cycle, and then you undo all the piping at the end, check it to make sure that it's actually been cleaned. So you do that with one chemical supplier's chemical. Uh, and after that, if you want to change to another chemical supplier, we're going to have to make sure it's doing an equivalent job. So you might not redo the whole validation, but there's a switching cost there in that you're going to have to make sure that it does the same job. And you're probably going to have to go and adjust all your dosing equipment to, to suit their chemical. There's a lot of smaller suppliers in that industry uh, outside of the, the two that I just mentioned, but the switching costs are reasonably high. People don't tend to change very often. I mean, another one, I think everyone in the value investing world knows Fastenal. Uh, I mean, Fastenal to me looks very you know, well-organized, well-run, huge business with large economies of scale and, and lots of extra services that you, you don't necessarily get from smaller suppliers. I think you'd find even the smaller suppliers on their own are, are pretty decent businesses. There's one listed company in Australia that's probably a good counterexample to that. It's called Coventry Group. Um, so they sell bolts and fasteners here. 
if you look at their gross margins compared to Fastenal, they're quite a bit lower. And I suspect that's because their business model is to try and actually go for economies of scale through automation and generally doing things that actually make it a little bit harder to buy the product. We used to use them. I've visited their one of their stores a couple of times just to see how it all worked. And it's completely the opposite experience to most, most fastener suppliers. So usually you walk into a, a fastener shop and you, you go, look, mate, I want 10 of these, six of these, eight of those. Somebody walks out the back and grabs it for you and asks you what account you'd like it put on. You might not even mention the price. You sign for it and away you go. You go into one of Coventry shops and, uh, yeah, basically you pretty much need to pre-order. They don't carry stock of everything that, that you need. So it looks like a much more capital-light business, and I think that's what they're, they're trying to do there. But it's missing the one thing that the buyer actually wants, which is the convenience of just walking in and, and picking stuff up straight away without having to wait. There's a couple of companies around that I buy those sorts of things off, so bolts or small pipe fittings, hydraulic fittings, that kind of thing. They look like a decent business. There's not much price haggling going on there, so they should have decent margins. Is there any one or two things that would create the biggest headache for you in terms of trying to switch to another service provider or manufacturer? Having to do work. Um, so, for example, in the, the steam equipment industry, you've got Spire Sarko. Within that company, there's two different sort of main manufacturing areas. And I'll probably get this wrong, but it's something like one's a lot of stuff's made out of China and the other's made out of the US. And in each of those, they tend to use a different flange standard. So you've got a, a bit of equipment that bolts into a pipeline. It's got a, a flange on either end that uses bolts to hold it together. And there's a distance between the flanges. So if I want to go to another supplier, I've got two options. I can go and try and find somebody who makes something that's exactly the same length, that has exactly the same flange on each end of it. And there's really only one or two other suppliers of, of steam equipment like that in the world. Or I can get the I can get the boiler maker in and get him to cut the pipe and weld new flanges in to suit someone else's bit of equipment. Or option three, I can just buy from whoever the, the original bit of equipment came from and save myself the trouble. So guess which one happens most often? To make those sort of businesses work, you need to have a decent selling network. So I've, I've, in Australia, I've really only come across Spirex Sarko, and there's another private Japanese company called TLV which is quite good, very similar to Spirex Sarko. And then uh, there's a third called Armstrong, which you occasionally see that pops up. But once you've bought their equipment, it's very, it's not impossible, but it's pretty annoying to try and change to uh, another supplier. So that sort of thing just tends to get changed out at whatever the price is. Doesn't mean I don't complain, doesn't mean I don't try and haggle, but the success rate on that kind of thing is very low. Right. I love that uh, phrase, industrial staples, because as a consumer staples guy, you know, you kind of think about it from the consumer standpoint, but there's this whole other world that's operating where most people don't interact with it on the industrial side and they have their own little ecosystem that supplies the daily needs and, and it's something that most people don't spend a minute thinking about because they don't really need to advertise to consumers. They don't interact with it in their daily lives. It's totally behind the scenes. But for somebody in your line of work, they're kind of like the lifeblood of the operations supplying those critical components that make operations possible. So it's a very interesting phrase and a very useful way to think about that, I think. That's right. And there's, there's a bunch of other components like that that I've probably forgotten about. Things like mechanical seals, oil seals, gaskets, gaskets not so much but there's a lot of small components like that that are regularly failing getting replaced and there's just not a lot not enough time in the day uh, not enough resource out there to compare prices on all those things i have one quick question as kind of a maintenance question so on something like the centrifuge or those major pieces of capital equipment do they come with a warranty like a i'm thinking of like a car where it has a five-year warranty and then after that you know, then the secondary market might be responsible for the repairs or is it pretty much always the original manufacturer who's responsible for servicing that? Depends how enterprising you are. To use the GEA one as an example, there's a warranty usually 12 months. So that, that warranty will often start when the equipment arrives on site. So you've got to make sure you actually get the thing installed in time to take advantage of that. The other thing you have to do, and this is another another sort of quirk of the process industries, is when you buy a bit of equipment, you can't really pass off risk. You, you might think that you're passing off risk, but in general, whoever designs the plant is there to commission it is the one that's left holding the baby at the end of the day. So if you buy a bit of gear from someone like GEA and it doesn't work, you might withhold some payment as a way to try and motivate them to fix it. But if the cost of fixing the problem is greater than the payment you're withholding, 
companies like that will often just leave it, particularly if you're not likely to be a repeat customer. So that's, that's sort of part one, <laughs> is get what you paid for in the first place. And, and the only way to do that usually is to have enough technical strength in your organization to understand what you're buying and buy correctly. After it's installed, you have a 12-month warranty. And as something like a centrifuge has, I mean, for example, the one we have needs to be serviced every year or more frequently based on the, the running hours. And that involves pulling the whole thing apart. It's, it's a very complex job. So GA will supply the parts to do that, which are almost all rebadged parts. Not, not even rebadged. They're all things that they've bought from other suppliers and then supplied to you with a huge markup. So they'll do that with the lubricant oil, O-rings, mechanical seals, bearings, uh, oil seals, and then they'll send someone out to site to, to do the work as well uh, on a, a very expensive rate. So that's option one. A lot of companies still do that. So particularly in the public area, so a lot of centrifuges get sold to wastewater treatment plants. What I understand, a lot of those wastewater treatment plants, being councils or local government run, they just go with you know, someone like GEA to do the maintenance. But the next option is use a, an outsourced maintenance supplier. So there's some smaller guys around that will come in. They have access to the parts supply that GEA does. Uh, and they'll do the maintenance for a lower price. And then there's what we do, which is after the first service, work out where all the parts come from originally, buy them directly, and then use our own quite highly skilled employee to do the service on site, which is way cheaper. So an annual service with GEA doing it might be something like 30 grand or 40 grand, might even be more now. If you use the non-name brand uh, maintenance guy, that might be 10 grand less or 15 grand less, something like that. You use someone in-house to do it, we're down to the parts cost plus two to three days labor. So it's way, way cheaper. So an organization that have the technical strength in their maintenance department to do that kind of thing and have the scale to support that, they can make some big savings. One question I have is with the bigger pieces of equipment, What's their useful amount of life that they have? Can they go for five years, seven years, or much longer? Or does it depend on each individual piece of equipment? It depends on the bit of equipment, but I'd say in general, longer than the depreciation schedules allow. I know, I know there's some equipment in Cargill that's been there 20 years, 30 years, well over what you would normally expect. There's a degree of obsolescence. So over time, machinery manufacturers will get better designs. Uh, they do improve things, although sometimes they go backwards as well. <laughs> but the thing that I've seen take out most equipment over time in terms of getting it replaced is more things like scale, trying to get maintenance, uh, sorry, trying to get, um, to get personnel costs out. So moving to bigger individual unit processes that don't need as much supervision or, or have lower maintenance costs, that, that kind of thing. But there's some there's some very old gear out there. And if you, you maintain something well and it's not driven to obsolescence, then you, you can use it for 10 years, 20 years, depending on what it was. To take that to can of centrifuge as an example, I'd expect that doesn't become obsolete. Uh, there's not been that much improvement with that technology over time and, and one we've got reasonably easy to maintain. Uh, once it's sufficiently worn, so you tend to get wear on the inside of the, the machine due to the abrasive nature of the, the material going through it, you can send it off and have it resurface. Uh, so like, you know, laser clad where they, they put use use a plasma to basically put molten metal back on the, the surface of the machine and then remachine it and then get it back into action. So there's no no reason for something like that to get thrown out. Um, I'd expect it to have a very long service life. Is there any one piece of equipment that you have seen in your career that has improved over time in terms of technology or efficiency or any other factor? Uh, I mean, in oil refining, the so in vegetable oil refining, the, the deodorizing part of the plant has improved over time. And, and also the oil extraction part of the plant. Each of those improvements has been kind of slow. So to make an improvement on process equipment, you can do some little a little bit of work with a pilot plant, but mostly what happens is you have to get someone to buy your prototype and install it to do the test. That type of improvement happens slowly, but over time what happens is the you know, mechanical problems get removed through usually through sim more simplified designs. And stuff becomes easy to maintain because it's it's usually built in a way that makes it easy to get at the parts that you need to work on. And the maintenance procedures are, are better thought through. So, for example, in the oil seed business, we're using you know, hexane to extract the oil. If you've got a tank full of hexane uh, and that tank's got a shaft going into it with a bearing, 
you don't want to have to get inside the tank to work on it. So you want a way that you can work on it from the outside and preferably you want a way that you can work on it from the outside without having to empty the tank out of the hexane. That's a massive procedure as well. So things like that get better thought out over time. It's, it's really simple engineering, but it's very slow to happen because of the, the nature of having to sell a prototype to somebody first. I have one, one last question and kind of be respectful of your time. I was thinking Australia, like the U.S., is kind of blessed with an abundance of natural resources and I assume a supply of cheap energy. How big of a factor is that in your mind as far as like where companies decide where to locate plants and having a reasonable supply of cheap energy to make things? Because I assume energy is a huge input cost for factories. So I'm just kind of curious how you think about that and your experience where they decide to locate these facilities and how big of an advantage do countries like Australia and the U.S. have in that regard? Uh, it's a huge advantage. Uh, but uh, I guess when you're thinking about where to locate a plant, you're thinking about the energy inputs are one big thing. You're also thinking about the transport situation and getting goods to the plant and goods away from the plant. The U.S. is hugely advantaged in the latter. So the, the way that you guys can move rail cars of, of vegetable oil around from one side of the country to the other is pretty amazing. We can't do that here. We just don't have the scale. But here you tend to get kind of like geographical moats. Uh, so in the vegetable oil industry, the, the cost to transport the oil to the end customer is pretty high compared to the, the cost of the product. So the way that those plants are located around Australia puts each of those plants in a, either a monopoly or a, or a duopoly because of those costs and, and the scale factor involved. But with energy, that's a pretty huge thing as well. So on the East Coast, I originally come from a, an industrial town there called Newcastle, which had a couple of large aluminium smelters there and they were mainly located there because of the low energy cost and proximity to a couple of really big coal-fired power stations. So in the last 20 years, at least one of those has shut down and I, I tend to wonder how the other one is going given how much uh, electricity prices here have increased. But any of the other types of process plants, you've usually got a boiler or, or something else that uses a lot of gas. So you you would have to locate it on a, a gas pipeline to make it efficient most of the time. The, the only big users of gas that I see located away from the pipeline are things like gold mines uh, in Western Australia. They, they tend to use LPG gas to, or propane, you guys would call it, to, to run their, um, their heating processes. But in their situation, the transport cost to move the ore to the plant is way bigger than the, the cost to move the LPG to the plant. So that's why they tend to be located that way. Food industry, everything else tends to be on the pipeline and you, you really want a cheap source of gas. One question I have, this is more of a personal question, but for you, what has been the things you liked most about your job? And what are the things that you've liked least? Things I've liked most... I guess it's intellectually a pretty interesting career to have when, when you're actually able to apply yourself to business problems in the plant. So if you have an, an environment where you can make a change and that change is going to have a very quick payback time. So just to give a bit of background, if, if you're doing a process improvement project in any of these big food companies, what they're usually looking for is a one to two year, used to be three year, rough payback. So they take the cost of the project, divide the, um, the annual saving into it, and then they're looking for the number one or the number two coming out of that. So it's, it's pretty satisfying when you can actually be in an environment and get that sort of thing done. And it tends to be all-consuming when you're doing it. There's a lot of details that need to be covered off. When the obstacles in your way are small, that's quite a satisfying thing to do and quite productive for the owners of the business. What's more frustrating is is when things get in the way of that. Uh, and I think I hinted at that a little bit with the, the things I said earlier about sort of Kaizen and Six Sigma. There's nothing wrong with those programs per se when they're, they're very well run, but when they're just half done or mandated from the top down without an understanding of how they work, that type of thing can be quite frustrating. For me, and I think for a lot of manufacturing employees, one of the most frustrating things in general is waste. So where a uh, decision from someone senior is aimed at solving one problem but creates a lot of problems somewhere else that are bigger. It's demoralizing for me, but for the people that work for me uh, or have worked for me in the past, that's been the sort of thing that really bothers them. And I think that's the same across all industries. People, you know, we all, we all go, to, go to work to get paid, but I think humans have a kind of team instinct in that they, they don't like to see things that harm the group that they're in. So if they, they see something like that happen and they can see that it's not helping the, the business that they're in, that can be very frustrating outside of their own individual pay packet or, or work conditions. 
So from a morale point of view, I think one of the best things people can do for their businesses is just try to make sure there's no waste, try to make sure that things run efficiently and um, that there's communication with people on the factory floor to identify those sorts of waste problems before they go too far down the track. That's really well said. And I think if there's one takeaway that would make everyone better off and any kind of organization is just the management or the owners should do their best to minimize frustration on everyone's part. A similar phrase that I've heard frequently is that people don't work for companies or businesses. They work for other people. And you mentioned that having this group and feeling of camaraderie, not being frustrated with trying to do the right thing, it all leads to the same area. People want to be happy and, and feel like they're doing well in being productive. That's right. I'd agree. Well, I, that was a wonderful education on industrial processes, and I learned quite a bit. And I've, I feel like that's saying something because I've been uh, reading this stuff for 20 years, and all of this was new to me. So I really appreciate you enlightening all of us on those topics. You're welcome. It's good to have someone uh, that's interested in it. It's, uh, I don't think it gets the attention that it really should in the investing world. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to preferredsharespodcast.com. On the site, there's a full list of resources and additional data for you to dig into. And on the site, you can subscribe to the podcast directly so all future episodes land directly in your inbox. If you want to support Preferred Shares, the single most helpful thing you can do is to spread the word. Share Preferred Shares with others who love business history as much as you and we do. Mm-hmm.